All right, it happened again this week, and I'm getting really kind of tired of it. I was working on my sermon from Acts 12, and I'm really excited about it. I'm going to look at uh, fighting against God and, and uh, counting on the promises of God. It's an awesome chapter. And I got a good deal into it, and as I usually do, I uh, read the text leading up to and coming after as I'm preparing the sermon. And annoyingly to me, on Wednesday, I think it was, as I'm reading the end of Acts 11 again, it struck me with a, oh, shoot. Because it was a text I can just fly by real easily. There's not a lot of meat to it. And that's why this is called those four, those four extra verses. If you look at Acts 11, at the end, there seem to be these four unnecessary extra verses that don't fit in. They're not really needed. It's a neat little story. And I'm going to trust this was from God because it washes real clearly with Scripture. If it's not, um, I beg your forgiveness, and more importantly, I'll beg God's because I have a little problem on my hand if I'm preaching as God's word something that's not. But you guys can parse it, see how it washes with Scripture. And as we go through, I'll explain to you um, how I so easily missed it. Today we're going to look at those final four verses that will be our focus of Acts chapter 11. And as I looked at it, it was, it was really eye-opening, uh, convicting, encouraging, etc. To me, I hope it will be for you. So Acts 11, remember, we have Peter has come to Jerusalem to talk to the church about his experience with Cornelius and the household of Cornelius. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And he comes back, and the party of the circumcision has a problem. Rather than uh, defending himself, Peter tells him what has happened. He looks to glorify the name of God, which he reveres. And the people rejoice together. The gospel, starting in verse 19, is preached in Antioch. Gentiles come to faith. Jerusalem church hears about that. They send off Barnabas to go and equip and encourage that church. And while Barnabas goes, we, we looked at how Saul disappeared for a time of waiting. And he went through that time of waiting. Well then, check this out. I'm in verse 26 of chapter 11. It says, and when he had found him, when Barnabas found Saul, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We'll look at that in a minute, but it's pretty cool. He went and he got Saul. You imagine the conversations those two had on the way back. Wouldn't that be neat to have a, a nice little walk with Saul after his period of waiting? Saul, what's been going on? Oh, the stories he would tell. And Barnabas sharing with Saul what was going on in Antioch that Saul would have had no idea about. News from Jerusalem. And, I mean, that, that's one of your... You're not hanging out with people that play with Jesus. You're, you're hanging out with real, live, fire-breathing Christians, an apostle as well. I mean, that would be a fun little walk to go along for, you know, just listen in. They get there, they teach, they, they meet with, they fellowship with, the people are first called Christians, and that's a great place to end chapter 11. But for some reason, God has these four verses that say, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Great little story. You know, it's all clap for the believers in Antioch, right? But why is that there? What the heck does that have to do with the gospel going to the Gentiles? why didn't God just chop four verses and move into chapter 12 so I could have got my stinking sermon done that I was all excited for? Well, so we're going to take a look at today. Paul and Barnabas come to Antioch. Believers are, are coming hand over fist. 
And what do they do? Verse 26. They meet with and they... It's a pastor trick right there. You're all sleeping. So, as a result, we're now going to stand up individually, introduce ourselves, share a hobby, and sing one line of your favorite song, which we'll all try to guess. Who'd like to start? Or we can try again. What were they doing in Antioch? Renee and Patty are exempt. Everybody else. No, I'm kidding. They were teaching. Why? Now, now, don't miss there. It says they met with. These weren't just itinerant uh, teachers that came in and had nothing to do but put up signs. You know, seminar with Barnabas and Saul, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Sit and listen to the great teaching of these incredible men of God. Keep your distance. They don't sully themselves with you. These were people who lived in fellowship with these believers. And they taught. And they used the gift that God had entrusted to them. Why did they teach? These were regenerate souls. They were going to heaven. Okay? This body of believers. You had people going to heaven. Why did they teach? That's what God tells them to do. Ready for a dirty little secret? You guys hopefully have a level of trust with me the longer you've gotten to know me that what I tell you, especially when I'm sitting here, outside of here, who the heck knows. But while I'm sitting here, I'm going to give you godly, godly counsel. I'm going to give you what, what God says. God makes very clear in his word from start to finish that for a people to grow in their relationship with God, they must be taught and feast upon the word of God. Period. If you want to mature in your faith, it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of abiding in the word of Christ. Now, I could bring up numerous examples of people I know who don't spend hardly any time in the word of God. And they'll try to convince you that you don't really have to spend your time in the word of God to grow in your faith. You just need to walk in obedience to what you know. Well, that's half true. And some of those guys are pastors. But the full truth is this. To grow in maturity, to grow closer to God, to know God well, to have the joy God intends for you, to be equipped to live the life God calls you to, requires to be taught the word of God. One of those ways is by sitting under godly teaching or preaching. Another is to, to read the word for yourself. Another is to meet with one another and discuss and study. There are a variety of ways you do this, but you simply need to be taught the word of God if you're going to grow in your relationship with God. Now, you can try for years and decades to do it another way, but you can't, or God's lying to you. So these folks, Barnabas and Saul, they come in, and they teach the word of God that so the people can be equipped to do the works God has prepared them to do, so they can know the God, who God is that they live in relationship with, so they can see the depths of the grace of God that he's bestowed upon them, so they could just be floored again and again, day by day, with the gospel, and so they could be shown what to do as a child of God who walks in obedience to God. All right? They taught because they were making disciples who would then go out and make other disciples. Our job isn't simply to cross the line and be saved. Ah, I'm done. No, you've only just begun. Because then you need to be equipped to go out and make other disciples who make disciples, etc., etc., etc. The Word of God allows us to know God, know His will, know His grace, and mature in our faith. It allows us to, to know God well. It allows us to be used by God for His glory. It gives us the peace, joy, comfort, focus, patience, the fruit of the Spirit. It allows us to be equipped for every good work, to flee sin, to share our faith, and everything else. What's up? So would they have taught the knowledge of Moses as well as of Jesus? Oh, don't jump, my, don't jump me here. That's uh, number three. That's point three today. Okay. It's a very good question, and, that, and that's what struck me as I was preparing this week. We'll look at that in a minute, what, what they taught. But they taught because the people need to be taught to grow and mature in their faith. Then look what happens. As they taught, 
what happens here? A great many people in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, when I was a kid, I thought it was cool to be a Christian. I was a Jewish kid. A little secret, you ready? It's not cool to be a Jewish kid. There, there's nothing cool about being the Jewish kid, especially in the environment I grew up. You know why? People made fun of Jews. Now, I'm pleased to be kind of a, a half-breed in the sense of my dad's not Jewish, but I can say this. A lot of the, the Jewish kids I knew, they, they had a Jewish nose. You know what I'm talking about? Don't smile, because God will curse you. Jesus is Jewish. But they had a, a Jewish nose. And people would make fun of the Jewish noses. They would make fun of the Jewish names. They would make fun of the, you know, the little crackers we would eat at lunch a, a couple weeks of the year, the, the matzah. Oh, y'all little Jew kids can't eat, can't eat the bread. Ah, ha, ha. It wasn't cool. Well, and the Christian kids, when they got a little older in elementary school, they got these cool necklaces. You know, a lot of them, I had a lot of Roman Catholic friends, and, and they would go through, I still to this day, communion, uh, first communion, confirmation, like third, fourth, something like that, right? Help me out, people. So they would get these, these crosses or crucifixes, and they look cool, and these cats would put them on thick chains. Because, see, I grew up in the day when you wore fat laces and fat faux gold, because we, we were like that. So they had these cool necklaces. We, we didn't have cool necklaces. We didn't have cool food. We got made fun of. And they got to leave school a couple days a week early to go to something called CCD, which Lord knows no Jewish kid knew what it was called, but they got out early, and that was thinking cool. Why did Hebrew school? Was at 5.30 p.m.? Lord only knows. But if you want to be cool, have it during the school day. So I always thought it would be cool to be Christian. It was cool to be called a Christian. Well, in Antioch, that's what happened. See, they would look at these believers and they go, these, these cats are cool. These cats, let's give them a, a cool name. Let's call them Christians. And that's why they were first called Christians. Come on now. That's not, there's nothing cool about being a Christian. You see, what I thought was cool was had nothing to do with knowing God, and there's nothing cool about being a Christian. In fact, the world will tell you you're not cool, but you're a fool. And the term Christian was no term of endearment. It was, oh, look at these little people, they're like little Jesuses, little Christ. Oh, doing what Jesus does. Let's call them Christians. It was a, a term of derision. But you know why they received that term of derision? Because they were maturing in their faith, and when you mature in your faith, people take notice can't fake it, you can't force it, but you can't prevent it. If you are sitting under and abiding in the word of God, walking in obedience to it, you will mature in your faith, and as you mature in your faith, people will notice. Truth is, you probably won't even notice it, but other people will notice it. And as they notice it, your aroma, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 16, you can check it out, it will be pleasing to some and a stank to others. But you will have a smell about you as a maturing child of God. These folks had a stink, and it stunk to the masses, and the masses called them Christians. Now, that's a great place, I think, to end. These people came to faith, they were taught, they matured, and people took notice. But then we still got these four stinking extra verses. Why? Let me caveat this. Let me ask you to answer this question for me. Those of you who've known me longest... What, do you, what is my primary goal as your pastor for you? Be honest. To bore us to death on Sunday. <laughs> That's one of them. In relationship to God, though. My goal is to help you grow as close to God as humanly possible. If you don't know him, it's to introduce you to him. And what I'm about to tell you is something that most uh, pastors avoid because it's not comfortable. 
But I'm going to give you the whole unadulterated truth here so that you can walk as close to God as possible. Look at those four verses. Take Renee's question. You want to ask your question again, Renee? Do you remember it? What were they teaching them? Right? They were teaching them. Well, he had an apostle in play. He was teaching them what Jesus had revealed to him. They were expounding upon the Old Testament scriptures, coloring them in and filling them out. They were teaching them the word of God and the teachings of Christ, which brought to completion the Old Testament scriptures. Check this out. What did Jesus teach most about? What single topic did he teach most about? Heaven? Hell? Loving one another? What do you guys think? God? Anybody know? Money. The single most taught-of topic in Scripture by Jesus is cash money. 15% of all his teaching in Scripture is on money. Why? More than heaven and hell combined. Something like that, yeah? Why would he teach so much? There's something inherently dangerous about money. If you read scripture, there's a very close connection between how one handles money and one's relationship with God or their spiritual health. What are these people dealing with in these four verses? Money. They're sending money to the believers in Judea. Why did they send that money? They had been taught the word of God. Can I unpack that for you? This is a dirty little secret in the American church that I apologize to you on behalf of all pastors. We have taught you all poorly. Starting with our children, we have taught them poorly, and for generations it has been poorly taught. And we, and I include myself in it, have developed a love for money because we don't understand. Second uh, Kings 22. You know what that is? The story of Josiah. And he found a book in the temple, the book of the law, that had been neglected. The people didn't know what God taught, and they sinned against God because of it. Leviticus 4, I was reading this morning, deals with sins of intentionality and unintentionality, and I don't know why these coincidentally came together. But you know what these people had been taught about money, as they were taught the teachings of Christ, and you can guarantee Paul taught this stuff. Everything is God's. None of it is yours. This thing, money, there's not a whole lot in here. <laughs> but none of it is mine. You, when you hear this noise, that's how you know you're a pastor, when you can shake change in that thing. None of this is mine. Oh, I think it is sometimes, but none of it is mine. I'm a money manager. God said, John, here, manage it well. I'll tell you how to manage it. Manage it well, but it's mine. Let me get that back. These people have been taught that all is God's. Matthew 6, 19. Somebody flip there for me. You guys know that verse. Matthew 16, do not store up for yourself what? Treasures where? Why not? Moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. So where do you store it up? Why? 
Who are you storing it up for in heaven? No. Read it close. Do not store up for treasures on earth. So store them up where? For who? For you. Whose money? For whose enjoyment for eternity? You ever notice that? They would have been taught that truth too. Jesus doesn't say give it to me. He says invest it in eternity. 10,000 fold return. Read scripture closely. For your eternal enjoyment. You ever notice that? It's not gimme, gimme, gimme. It's mine. Use it for my glory and your joy. 2 Corinthians 9, 10 through 11. 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 15. You know what that is? The word of Paul, which he would have shared with these people, no doubt. Teaches a very clear uh, premise. Why does God increase your financial assets? Is it to increase your standard of living? To increase your level of giving? Read it. See if I'm making that stuff up. These are uncomfortable things to talk about, aren't they? I don't like talking about money with y'all, and the devil smiles. You probably don't like to hear about money, and the devil smiles. Because when you look at Matthew 6, it says, you can't serve both God and money. You'll either love one and hate the other, or hate one and love the other. Why does Jesus talk so much about money? Well, there's an inherent danger to it if we're not careful. And this is in stinking Antioch, 2,000 years ago. What about in the wealthiest nation at the wealthiest time in human history? Who lives there? Hi. The poorest among us are wealthier than 99% of the people on the world today. Do you realize that? Who should pay attention to these teachings of Jesus? We should. What I see here are a group of people who are taught the word of God, who walk in obedience to the word of God, and they sent money to the people in Judea who had a need. Why? Did God go, please send money, they're going to be hungry. Please, 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 please. Everybody, $20, please. Did God need the money from the church of Antioch to feed the people in Judea? Did, come on, did he need the money? Why did he send the prophet? I invite you to be a part of the work I am about, God says to the people. Would you like to be about this work alongside me? Now, there are consequences to obedience or disobedience, but God didn't need the money. God wanted the people to walk intimately with him. I'll be blunt with you. The greatest barrier you and I have to walking intimately with God as American Christians is our stuff. You and I have a love, I, I'll say I, you and I have a love for this world. God, if you can just leave me here in good health for eternity, I'm good. Shame on me because I haven't cast my eyes upon Christ in eternity where I will dwell one day. This is as close as believers we will ever get to hell. And look how much we love it. Anchor me in, God. Anchor me in. No. Keep your eyes on heaven. Look at where we're going to go. Invest. Patty, you're in financial investment. Which is a better one? $1,000 today or $10 million next week? That's the offer Jesus gives us. But it might not be next week. It might be... Uh, next decade, two decades, three decades, or this afternoon. For us to walk intimately with God requires us serving God over stuff. Requires using his stuff as he calls us to for his glory. Because if we don't, we're walking in open rebellion, either intentionally or unintentionally. You see, we could play games as a church. I, I can... I read an email from a guy. It, it was a... Well, forget it. I don't need to mention that. We can play games with money. We can go slow. We can make it easy. We could say, well, here's what you do. For this week, why don't you try giving a little, just a little bit more and see how it goes. And next week, and guys, I love that back pocket thing I showed you. I want to hold on to it, and I want it fat. 
I want lots of bank accounts and fancy stuff. You know why? Because then I don't have to trust God. But you know the dirty little secret? God says, give to me as I command you. Read, read closely in Scripture. And I tell you what, we're going to unpack this, not today because we don't have time, but at some point in the near future, maybe in a Bible study setting, I want to take us all through an in-depth look at how God says to handle money so we can have the blessing he desires for us to have. But God challenges us in his word. He says, give to me as I command and watch how I respond to you. Open your mouth and get ready because I'm about to fill you up. That's what he's saying. Challenge me. Give to me as I tell you. Challenge you. Do it and watch what I do. Right? But we don't trust him. What would happen if we walked in obedience under good teaching of God? What might God do? How might God respond? Are you afraid? What happens if you run out of money? Whoa. Oh, do not worry about tomorrow. You know the story of that guy who built the, the silos to store up all his stuff? How'd that go? What might happen? How might people see us? How might we might glorify God? How well might we know God if we were taught the, the full, the full word of God, the whole stinking thing top to bottom and responded in obedience? Now, how do you do this? God loves a cheerful giver, right? Everybody know that passage? Well, I don't feel so cheerful, so I ain't giving. Well, that's not what that means. Often you don't feel so cheerful until after you give. But how do you become a cheerful giver? Look up. Look at the grace of God. Look at the gospel of God. What else were these people taught? The depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The work of Christ. The grace of Christ. The love of Christ. How much God loved them. They were given the, the full shot of who Christ was, and then they were given the law of God, not to be right with God, but to be able to glorify God. The issue isn't to work harder and try harder to do better. It's to look deeper and understand more fully and see more clearly the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. And the only thing you can do after that is, here I am, God, use me. What is your will, God? Let me follow. I see the good shepherd. I hear his voice, and I know him. I'll walk in obedience, even when it doesn't make sense. Even though the mountains shake and the earth gives way, I'm not going to fear because I know God and I'm going to run to him. Well, these people ran to him. A prophet came and said, your brothers in Judea have a need, contribute to the need, and each one gave. This is the coolest thing, and I better get to the right text so I can read it to you because it's not there. Each one, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers. This wasn't, if you don't do it, you're going to hell. No, you're a believer, you're not going to hell. But your heavenly Father invites you into his work. He invites you to walk closer to him, to see him more clearly, and to see him be a blessing to you and use you as a blessing to others and allow his will to be done more fully with you involved in it. It's a gift he entrusts to you. Do you see how crazy this is? So why do we sit as American Christians with money and with so many other things, and I'm as guilty as the next cat, and play with God? I want to know God well, but I want to do it on my terms, not his terms. That's a little God. Then there's big God. He says, I love you more than you can fathom. I will take better care of you than you can ever believe. I will provide every need you have, and I will provide every good thing you can imagine. You will not be in want if you walk in obedience to me. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, he tells us. Why would we not? Walk in obedience to him. Is it perhaps that we haven't gazed fully enough upon the grace of God? Is it perhaps we haven't been exposed to the word of God and it's full and adulterated measure? Is it perhaps we've conformed too much to this world because we haven't allowed God to transform our mind through his word? Is it perhaps all of those? 
See, I was brought up, I was never taught how to handle money in a godly way. I was taught how to handle money in a worldly way. And I can handle me some money. So what happened is I got into the church and I see the poor teaching in the church about scripture. and I don't want to touch it. I don't want to mess with your money. I don't want your money. You know why I don't want your money as a pastor? Good Lord, that's a scary premise. I'm not only accountable for what God entrusts to me, but as I lead the church, what God entrusts to us as a church, I don't like that. He's saying that's mine and that's the offering of people. You want to screw with that? No, sir. Not at all. So in part, I'd be quite content. Well, we'd probably go real hungry. I don't know how long we'd be here. But to never have to deal with that. But I want you to walk as close to God as possible, and I want us collectively as a church to be as powerful as possible. And that's a collective word there. Don't miss that. We must walk in obedience side by side for the glory of God to be used mightily. Individually, sure. Collectively as a church. Does God need the talent of God's Grace Bible Church to do his will? Does he need the good looks of God's great will? Okay. Does he need the good looks of God's Grace Bible Church? Does he need our money? But does he invite us to give to him as he calls us? What might happen if we did? We would all starve to death and live in the streets. Would we? Would we? Do you know what happened to the believers in Antioch after they sent this offering based on the word of God being taught to them? Do you guys know the story of what happened? Do you know what? Seriously, do you know how God responded to them? Neither do I. But do you want to know how God responds to the unadulterated obedience of God's grace Bible church? You see, we can tell that story. What might God do through us? How could we be better equipped to fulfill the great omission if we gave great omission? Here's a great omission, handling God's money. How could we be better equipped to fulfill the great commission if we gave all of our time and talent and treasures God commanded us to? How could we be better equipped to care for the widows and the orphans and feed the hungry? How could we be better equipped to care for one another as we have needs within the church? How could we be better presented to the world around us, not by clever marketing, but the power of the Holy Spirit going out and the world looks at us with derision and says, ah, Christians, but some look at us and say, I want to be a part of that. And we share the good news with them and we teach them the word of God and equip them to walk in obedience alongside us. What might be the stories that we would tell? Do you want to know? 99% I say yes, 1% I say, well, 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 wait. Because this is scary, guys. I'm not joking with you. I'm not joking. If you want to completely obey God, whoo, you want to get a little bit of the butterflies. It's like up, 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 up the roller coaster. Oh, God, whoa, no. But you know what happens at the bottom? You don't crash. You go for the ride of your life. And you know where it ends up? You know where it ends up? Not back where you started. With Jesus face to face. You get off that awesome ride that we call this life. And you know who's waiting for you when the ride's over? Jesus. He might have a big smile on his face. Jesus, I didn't starve to death. I didn't, I didn't have a horrible life. It wasn't miserable. My God, I fled sin and it was better. Oh, yeah. Ain't that something? Hey, here's all your money. Oh, wait, there's nothing left, Jesus. He goes, oh, no, no. You didn't store it up on earth. Wait, 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 that's no joke. No, no, come for a walk. Let me show you where you've invested it. What? Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store it up where? When you arrive, what do you think you might have stored up? 
Now, is that greedy? Is that greedy? Investing for eternity with a guaranteed 10,000-fold return. Is it? No? Is it a prosperity gospel? No, it's a biblical teaching. Could you imagine? 10,000-fold return for eternity. Glorifying God in the present. Having the joy he desires for us fully. But it's scary, isn't it? What does God teach about his money? Give you the bare-bone basics. He says, let's see what we got. Fifteen years ago, if I went to pull a big bill, it wouldn't be a 20. Just FYI. So God doesn't promise you give to him. He's giving you back, you know, tenfold. You get one of these cats. God gives you a $20 bill. What does God say give back to me off the top? Two dollars. Ten percent. It's called the first fruit offering. It's called the tithe offering. We'll go into greater teaching on this if you like it. Well, we'll go into greater teaching at another time. Some people <clears throat> will say we don't live under the tithe. I, I disagree, and I can show you clearly from Scripture. God commands the first fruits off of this. If you don't give it to him, do you go to hell? No, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But when you give it to him, you know what happens? You're walking in obedience. You're glorifying him. After the 2%, what do you do with the rest of the 18? Whatever you want. You can give God 18 more. You can go, according to my kids, and buy a Lego ship. You can give it to your neighbor in need. You can do whatever you want with that 18. The Holy Spirit will convict you in your heart. But God, think about how crazy it is. God says, here's 20 bucks, it's mine. $2 back to me. Why? Because I want to get a hold of your heart. 18, you decide. Enjoy it now. Enjoy it later. I'm pleased with you either way. As you grow in your faith, as you mature in your faith, you probably use it differently little by little. Now, you know it gets hard? We had this at home this morning. $2 off of 20 is easy, isn't it? Right? 20 off 200. 200 off 2,000. Ooh, that starts to get a little harder, right? 2,000 off 20,000, 20,000 off. And these are big numbers we're dealing with, right? And, and you see how it gets a little bit harder? Why? Well, Jesus talks about it. Because it's hard. There's competition for our hearts. Anybody seen in the share a poll in the last couple months out there? Anybody sacrifice a kid to Moloch? But we have idols today that compete for our hearts. Now, do you know what happens as you give to God as God commands you? You don't become miserable. You come to know God more clearly and see God work in your life more deliberately. And it's hard because it's not what the world calls us to. But what might happen, guys? Now the question becomes this. Do we want to play a game with God? Do we, do we want to, to live with God on our terms and trust him kind of, some of the time, sort of? Or do we want to, I know you're not supposed to put him to the test, but properly put him to the test. Walk in obedience and see what happens as we walk in greater and greater obedience to God. Let's take a couple minutes and share some stories of how God's let us down in the past. Because we've got to get those out there so we know what we're dealing with. How God's just kind of eh, stuck it to us. How we walked in obedience to God and it's gone really, really, really bad. So who wants to start? Anybody maybe, and we don't have to share these, because I know we would have millions of them. Where something didn't seem like it was going to go well, 
But it went really, really, really well. And sometimes it took a really, really, really long time to even get a little bit of glimpse of what God was up to in that seemingly really horrible thing. You see, guys, it's hard because this world is highly attractive in a variety of ways, and we live in a highly attractive environment. I have a nice house. I have a nice car. I have air conditioning and running water and a comfortable couch and a big TV, and it's just fine. You know, I feel like I could sit there for eternity. I can watch hockey this afternoon and do it again tomorrow if it was on, and I can go outside and mow the lawn and listen to an audio book, and I'm happy. Life's good. I got, got a great wife. I got three good kids. I have great kids. I shouldn't qualify it that way. I'm a happy guy. But heaven is so much better, and life isn't just about being happy, 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 Duck Dynasty. Happy, happy, happy in this stuff. It's about finding joy in Christ and walking in obedience to him and knowing where you're going. But to know God well, you have to walk intimately with God in obedience. Well, I look at this text again, and I see why it ends this way. You see, these folks came to faith. God opened the eyes of the Gentiles to see who he was and to know who he is and what he has done. And Barnabas and Saul came and they taught them the word of God from the beginning to the end, who God was, what people had done, what God had done to reconcile them, them to himself and who Christ is. And it floored them. It floored them. They understood how far they were from God, how they had offended God, how there was nothing they could do to be right with God and what God had done for them. Dying upon the cross, humbling himself, becoming, check this one in scripture, becoming poor so that they might be rich. And their response as they allowed this word to dwell in them richly was to fall in humble adoration before God and say, your will, not my will. Let me follow you, not try to drag you to follow me. Allow me to know you well. Allow me to behold the wonders of your law. And God says, come and let me allow my joy to fill you completely. You see, God wants you to have a whole lot better than you can force yourself. And what happened was, God sovereignly had some prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch at just the right time. And one of them named Agabus said to them, by the Holy Spirit, that there would be a great famine over all the world. Luke tells us that this took place in the days of Claudius. So what did the disciples do? They said, we'll pray for them. No, although they prayed. They decided to send relief to the brothers, everyone according to his ability. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. God invited these people to be about his work. And they were about his work because they had been taught his word and shown who he is and his incredible love for them. Now, I'd like four more verses, please, God, at the end of that. And I want to read, And God blessed the believers in Antioch in this way. But we don't get that. And I think we don't get that because God wants us to Write our own story. And it's not just about your money, because it's not yours. It's not just about your time, because it's not yours. It's not just about your mind and what you put in it, because the mind isn't for you, it's for God. It's all God's. And God gave us new life in Christ so that we might truly live and live for his glory in an intimate relationship with him. So I'll throw a challenge down to you, which I'll throw on myself. What might happen if we spent some time this week 
and allow God to convict us of what we should do. And start with that dirty talk about money. What might happen if we used it as God called us to? I don't know. We might all live on the streets and starve to death. But I know where we're going once we finally starve. But we're not going to end up on the streets. And we're not going to starve to death. I think we'll begin to be floored. And I tell you, Renee and I talked about it this morning a little bit. One thing I love about this church, and perhaps the greatest, the greatest privilege of pastoring this church is, we're not a church that plays games with God. This isn't a game we're playing. It's a serious business we're about, and we all know it. We have a desire. The Holy Spirit is at work in every person's life in a variety of different ways. But we all have a desire to know God more intimately and to serve him more fully and to make the gospel known. Wouldn't everybody agree with that? Doesn't everybody here want the God's word to be preached in the, in the world out there, people to hear the gospel and hopefully under the power of the Holy Spirit respond to the gospel having their eyes open? Yes? Absolutely. And that's what we're all about. It's not a game we're playing. It's serious business. And God invites us to be a part of that work. And the more powerfully he will use us to work in that work, comes as we walk in greater obedience to him. I would prefer to write it a different way. Just show up, and God uses us mightily. But I tell you, this God is gracious with us. Because God allows us to mature and grow slowly, so that we might be used powerfully for his glory in his perfect time. You know, if God sent 200 people in that door next Sunday, that's not good news. It's not. Because we're not ready. But when God sends 200 people through that door, if we continue to walk in greater obedience, we'll be perfectly ready. But you want to know the secret? Often, God brings those 200 people in as his children go out walking in obedience. And as they walk in obedience and mature in their faith, as the word of God dwells in them richly, those 200 people, they smelled something. And many of them, Thought it was a stink and walked away. But those 200, they smelled something. And they came a little closer. And they said, Kelly, why do you smell funny? Flo, it's a strange stink you have about you. Renee, tell me about that. Is that a new perfume? You say, no, that's called the, the Holy Spirit. That's the stank of a follower of Christ. Can I tell you about him? And they said, yeah, tell me, because I, I, in a strange way, I kind of like that strange smell. And you share the gospel with them. And then they start coming through the door. And then we teach them the word of God. And we disciple them. And we send them out with a nice, filthy stink about them for some. And a pleasing aroma to others. But where does that stink come from? Walking in obedience to the word of God. As it is preached to us. As we are taught it. As we gaze upon the beauty of it. That's what happened in Antioch. Those four little verses. I read them. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And I thought it was just a cool little story about the people sending some money with Saul and Barnabas because Agabus showed up. But that's not what it is. It's about God working in the lives of people, inviting them to be involved in his work. It's a challenge that I feel God put upon me. It's a challenge I know that God puts upon every believer he has. He says to me these frightening words, which aren't really so scary. Trust me. Does it ever go bad when you trust God? Does it go bad when you trust in yourself? I'll let you guys figure that one out. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that 
you would, you would work in our lives, that you would help us, not just in the area of finances, but in every area, to trust you. God, I, I pray that, that your word would be, would be taught to all of us in its entirety, that we wouldn't cherry-pick items and avoid others, but we would let it go out and offend us in the areas where we need to be offended and encourage us in the areas where we need to be encouraged. And in those usual times when it's in a little of both, we would receive both. God, help us understand you're not some Scrooge who walks around going, gimme, 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 gimme. You're a loving Father who says, allow me to give to you. Allow me to give to you more and more, abundantly, every good thing. Allow me to bless you and give you joy and peace and patience. Allow me to reveal myself to you more fully. Allow me to to allow you to hear me and to know me and to follow me. And for us to be allowed requires our obedience. Father, I thank you uh, for giving us the Holy Spirit so that we might walk in obedience to you. I thank you for the fact that we are not right with you because we walk in obedience, but we're right with you because of the obedience of Christ and that his righteousness was poured upon us as his blood was shed and we came to believe in him. But Father, I pray that you would empower us and encourage us to walk in greater obedience so we might glorify you so we might have the joy you desire for us to have, and so we might be salt and light in this world in the way you desire. Help us to never forget there is nothing about us that you need, God. You don't need our mouths. You don't need our feet. You don't need our hands. You don't need our stuff. You don't need anything about us, but you invite us to use it for your glory, through your strength, and in your power. In God, in this world, there is a lot of attraction to stuff. And I pray we would never... We would never go to the extreme of monasticism and avoid the stuff or see the stuff as evil, for it is not. But I pray that we would enjoy the stuff in the way you desire. God, each and every one of us, yes, in various varying degrees, but still, we have been blessed in an abundance of stuff. And we thank you for the stuff, and I pray we would enjoy it fully. But I pray we would enjoy it for your glory. I pray we would use it with an eternal mindset. And the reality, God, is we won't unless we stay focused on you. Allow your word to dwell in us richly and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit following our good shepherd. God, we come before you as a church and say, use us mightily for your glory. God, we pray that you would open the eyes of the people we live in relationship with or the people we randomly come across or the people we live next door, that you might open their eyes and let us know so clearly that you are working in their lives, giving us the opportunity to present the gospel to them. I pray that we would be equipped to live such good lives that those who don't believe in you would come to know you through us. I pray that we would be prepared to give a defense for the, the hope that we have while people ask, as you command us to. But God, I pray we might see a mighty work of yours amongst, our, amongst our, ourselves, that we might see you work powerfully in the lives of others. And I pray we would walk in obedience so we might be a part of that work for your glory and for our joy. Father, we thank you that you forgive us for our sins through Christ. We thank you that you call us your children. We thank you that you are preparing an eternal home for us in heaven. We thank you for the fact that you will never leave us nor forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.